Okay, so John 4, verses 1 to 42. On the small Bible, like just with Holy Bible, it's page 752. And on the one with the frame on it, it's 1066. Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have, is just said, what you have just said is true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. To us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do with the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, Four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop of it for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, One sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. 
Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Um, let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this marvellous passage from your word of Jesus and his interaction with the Samaritan woman. We do pray now, Lord God, that you would um, <clears throat> quieten our minds and our hearts, help us to focus on what you're saying. Father, that by your spirit that you would be changing us um, to bring glory to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philip Ng is one of the richest men in Singapore. Uh, he's a property developer with an estimated wealth of between $9 and $12 billion. But hey, what's $3 billion difference uh, when you're that rich? And in one sense, you could say, well, he's, he's made it. He's, he's got it all. Uh, whatever things, whatever experiences he desires, he can have because the money is there. But he says that he was never satisfied. Uh, he says, and I quote, I was always in search of a better life, a better purpose, a better me, a better everything. Uh, in fact, despite having it all, uh, he describes his life as being empty. Makes sense, doesn't it, when you think about it? Because if money could satisfy, then the rich people would be the most um, contented, happy, well-balanced people in the world. And they're not. Uh, and it's true of us as well. It's true of ordinary non-billionaire types, people like you and me. Uh, we work for things which <clears throat> give us a bit of a shot of satisfaction, but it soon wears off. And we find ourselves craving after something else, something newer, something better, something different. For lasting satisfaction eludes us. Today we meet a woman who found true satisfaction. It's not that she went out in search of it. In fact, she went out uh, in John chapter 4 just to collect some water from a well when she found herself in a life-changing conversation. But to understand that, uh, we need to take a step back a little bit. Um, in John chapter 4, if you have that open in your Bibles, uh, we see that uh, Jesus and his disciples were baptising people. They were baptising people uh, in the uh, region of Judea in fact, they were baptising many people, lots of people, because Jesus was attracting crowds. There were more people that were coming to Jesus to be baptised than were going to John the Baptist to be baptised. And the problem was that Jesus' opponents, the Pharisees, they got wind of this. They became aware that Jesus was growing in 
influence, growing in popularity, and that would not have thrilled them. Uh, eventually, Jesus would come into direct conflict with the Pharisees, but this was not the time. That time had not yet arrived. And so as Jesus knew that the Pharisees became aware of his growing influence, growing popularity, uh, he made a strategic decision uh, to, um, to extricate himself from that situation, to uh, leave Judea and to head, head north uh, into Galilee, further from them. Now, by foot from uh, Judea to Galilee is about three days. And a big issue for Jews um, travelling from Judea to Galilee is that doing that journey means passing through Samaria. Um, there was an alternative route. You could uh, head east and then across the Jordan north and then head west into Galilee and therefore kind of bypassing uh, Samaria in an arc. But it took much longer. And so most Jews would take the shortcut, even though they didn't like doing so. The, the problem with Samaria was that it was full of Samaritans. You see, a long time earlier in their history, the, the kingdom of Israel had been one kingdom, but the kingdom, uh, there'd been some division, there'd been some rebellion, and the kingdom split into two kingdoms. A northern kingdom, which went by the name of Israel, and the southern kingdom, which went by the name of, of, uh, of Judah, from where we get the word Jew from. And so we have these two kingdoms. The northerners, they named the, their capital city the city of Samaria. And in uh, the 8th century, in 722 and 721 BC, a foreign army, the Assyrians, uh, invaded um, the northern kingdom and they defeated the northern kingdom. And they took uh, people, some of the notable inhabitants and people of, of means, out of the northern kingdom and they put them into exile in Assyria and they repopulated the northern kingdom with foreigners who intermarried with the uh, Israelites who had remained. And their children, their descendants, became the Samaritans. They were a mixed group racially. They were not pure Israelites anymore. They were a mixture. They were half-castes. And spiritually, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, what we call the Pentateuch. And more than that, they had set up a rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem. They'd set up a temple at Mount Gerizim. Now, um, in our world today, there are still Samaritans. There is a, an estimated, I think, 800 um, Samaritans left in the world, uh, living in two different groups. One, <clears throat> one group lives uh, on Mount Gerizim and another group lives just outside of Tel Aviv. These are real people that exist even today. But to the Jews of Jesus' day, they were despised, even worse than Gentiles. But not so for Jesus. Uh, in verse 5, 
en route through Samaria, Jesus and his disciples came to a town which is called Sychar. There is a village there today. It goes by a different name. And Jacob's well uh, is, is less than a kilometre south of it, uh, even today. And jo- Jacob's well uh, itself is close to the plot of land which Jacob had given to his son Joseph in Genesis. And the well um, is fed by a stream of water. Uh, It's a running spring, uh, which apparently, uh, even today, is still a reliable source of water. And so that's the background. In verse 6, it's the sixth hour, which means from 6am to six hours later, it means it's midday, And Jesus is resting at the well uh, in the midday sun. Why is he doing that? Well, he's resting at Jacob's well because he's tired. Jesus is fully God. He's also fully man. He gets tired. He gets hungry. And he's alone. When in verse 7, if you care to look at that, it says, He's alone when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. True, they don't associate with Samaritans, let alone drink water from the same bucket as a Samaritan. She's a despised Samaritan. And she's also a woman. There was a wrongful sexism uh, amongst Jews at that time which which said that all Samaritan women are perpetually unclean. Perpetually unclean. And, And this is why she's surprised that Jesus would even speak to her, let alone ask her for a drink. Now, without doubt, uh, Jesus was thirsty. But his greater interest was her thirst. His greater interest was not what he could get from her, but rather what he he could give to her. Have a look at verse 10. Jesus answered her question about how she could ask him for a drink of water by saying, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. Friends, living water. The other day on television I saw, um, uh, they'd interviewed some farming families and they'd just asked these farmers, uh, what are you going to do? What's going to be your reaction when the drought breaks, when the skies open and the rain falls? What are you going to do? And one man said, I'm going to stand in the rain and get soaked and I'm going to roll around in it. Another farmer said, I'm going to be jumping in puddles. And there was a lady who said, I'm going to finally have a good wash. And one more, one farmer said, I'm going to go out and buy myself some more cattle. Because friends, water means life. 
And in a dry and arid land like Israel, they understood that. And therefore, this became, this metaphor, this idea of water, became the, the obvious way to describe the sheer joy, the sheer abundance, the sheer satisfaction of what it means to know God, your creator, and to drink from his love and his grace. Phil, the billionaire, said that in his quest for satisfaction, he just looked in all of the wrong places. And we all do, don't we? We, we reject God, our creator, thinking that we can be satisfied in the things which he has created. Because we want to control our lives without God being involved. The prophet Jeremiah put it, or God rather, through the prophet Jeremiah, um, put the negative in this way. He said that Israel had rejected God, who is the spring of living water, and they'd rejected God because they preferred to drink the stagnant water of the cisterns, the storage tanks, which they had built themselves. Storage tanks that have got cracks in it, where the water leaks. And that is a picture of sin. That is a picture of life without God, which can never satisfy. Although the Samaritan woman, you can't blame her, she didn't quite get that deeper meaning in this conversation. At verse 11, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. So where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give uh, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I don't have to keep on coming here to draw water. She's still thinking of the water that Jesus is offering in as being like the water systems that we enjoy, you know, plumbing with water on tap. You don't actually have to go to a water, to a well, to, you just turn the tap and it comes on. But what was her greatest need in life? It wasn't water on tap, was it? What was her greatest need in life? How about forgiveness? How about acceptance? How about hope? So this is a need which Jesus exposes as he then asks her to go back to the town and call her husband and bring him back. Jesus already knew the messiness of her life, in and out of relationships, whether she was widowed or whether she was divorced or whether there's a combination of both. She'd had five husbands and she was now living 
in a sexually immoral relationship. She was living with a man that she was not married to. It's an uncomfortable truth. Exposed and maybe ashamed, she then asks Jesus a question. Verse 19. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. So how does she respond when it's exposed that she's had these multiple husbands and that the man she's living with is not someone who she's married to? How does she respond to that? Well, she asks a theological question. Yeah, maybe she was interested in theology. Or maybe uh, she's just changing the topic because it's... It's more comfortable to talk about theology. It's more comfortable to talk about theory. It's more comfortable to do that than to be actually real about life. But in verses 21 to 25, Jesus actually answers her theological question, but he answers it in such a way that actually answers her deepest need. He answers it in such a way that leads to the living water, of God's abundant grace. In verse 23, he talks about, he says, and, and yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. You see, she'd ask, is it right to, to worship God in Mount Gerizim or is it worship, right to worship God in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, well, no, it's... The Father wants people who are going to worship him in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. He says, a time is coming and has now come. Do you see the contradiction in that? It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? That the time is coming in the future... And it's already now come. I mean, that's strange, isn't it? How can it be? How can it be both in the future and how can it be also in the present? How can it be both? In John's Gospel, the, the term time, or is it should be probably translated here the word hour, actually refers to the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. That's the hour that Jesus is talking about. And at this point, it obviously has not happened yet, but the very coming of Jesus into the world, the very fact that God became flesh and dwelt amongst us, his very presence means that it's a sure thing, that it will happen. The hour is yet to come, but has now come in the person of Jesus. So whether you worship on Mount Gerizim or whether you worship in Jerusalem, ultimately even the temple in Jerusalem will very soon be obsolete as Jesus is ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven and sends out the Spirit into the hearts of men and women. Now listen to what God had promised through the prophet Isaiah. This comes from Isaiah chapter 44. Um, verses 3 and 4. 
And this is 800 years earlier. Where Jesus, God spoke about a time in the future saying, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. That will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. And one will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. That is, life and acceptance by God into his very own people. That is what is on promise. That is what uh, Isaiah describes through, through the, this, this water, watering of the land and the coming of the Spirit. Now, the woman uh, would not have uh, yet understood this, uh, but this is what's on offer, even to a despised, rejected Samaritan. That's what's on offer to unworthy people such as us. So how did she respond to this? Well, her response in verse 25, uh, the woman said, "Mm, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. There's a couple of times I can remember in recent years where I found myself in conversation with, with with a person or two different people two different occasions, uh, where the person actually was someone who was very well known, uh, very influential, and in one case, an important person. And I didn't have a clue. I didn't know who they were when I was talking to them. I was just carrying on this conversation like they were any person. And then I remember the moment that the penny dropped and I realised who I was... I felt like a real idiot on both occasions, very embarrassing. (laughs) But this woman doesn't feel dumb. She was thrilled. I mean, Jesus had earlier asked her to go and get her husband, who he knew did not exist, but now she did even more than that. In verse 28, she she just abandoned that water jar... She couldn't care less about the water jar and she ran straight back into Sikar because she wanted to tell everyone, she wanted to tell the whole town to come and meet this man, to come and meet Jesus. Come and see a man, she says in verse 29, who told me everything I ever did. I think she's exaggerating there to prove the point, to make the point. But then she asks the question, could this be the Christ? Could he be the Christ? Notice in verse 27, when the disciples came back from town with food, they were, they were surprised to see Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman. But did they ask anything about the conversation? Did they say to, Je- to the woman, what, what are you seeking? What, what's, what's on your mind? Or did they ask Jesus, what are you talking to her about? Did they show any interest in the conversation at all? No. No, they didn't. What were they concerned about? Lunch. Lunch. Verse 31. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Is that what's happened here? Think about this. You and I, we may be people who know the eternal satisfaction of this, of this living water that we get through trusting in Jesus. And yet, even though we live drinking up the living water of his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness, sometimes we can be absolutely oblivious to the true spiritual need of others around us. Because we're just thinking about lunch, just thinking about the material things of life. And we, and we don't see what, what's going on. We don't see what God is doing. What, we don't see what God might be doing in the life of another person. And so the disciples were interested in food and in a sense, in the same way that the lady had gone there to get water and Jesus uses water to talk to her about spiritual re realities, now he uses food to talk to the disciples about spiritual realities. My food, says Jesus is to do, do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, Jesus may very well have been hungry. I suspect he was. But his real hunger would be satisfied only by obeying his father. An obedience which would lead him to the cross. An obedience which would lead him to have a love for this woman for the will of his Father, God the Father had sent Jesus to seek and to save the lost. Now, you know that, uh, surprise, surprise, food does not come from supermarkets. Where does food come from? Food comes from farms, right? The farmer sows the seed, the farmer grows the plant, the farmer harvests the crop, and it takes... Along, I don't know what the gestation time or the time from, for wheat to grow is, eight months or something like that, but whatever, different crops, different time periods, it takes months. And in a sense, it's, it's like gospel ministry. And in another sense, it's not like gospel ministry. Because sometimes we can plant the seed of the gospel by talking to someone about Jesus, and it takes... Uh, it takes a long time, it takes months, it can even take years, decades for that uh, seed to grow and, and bear fruit for the person to actually turn to Christ. Other times, a person hears about forgiveness, hears about eternal life, hears about the living water that Jesus offers and they believe, like that. A young man... Um, came to see me one day in my house and he told me that a mutual friend of ours had um, told him about Jesus about a week earlier and, and explained to him what Jesus had done on the cross. And, and he'd come to me because he said, well, uh, I, I now want to become a Christian. Can you help me do that, please? I said, you betcha. You betcha, we talked through the gospel again and like that he was saying, yeah, that's what I believe. 
we talked through the cost of becoming a disciple from Luke chapter 14. This could be very costly for you. He said, yeah, I, I know that. Would you please help me to become a Christian? <laughs> and so we prayed and he, my lounge and he committed his life uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it was, it was very quick. Uh, it was uh, a week earlier, he'd heard the gospel for the first time. A week later, he's a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And it was so quick that my friend had shared the gospel with him and he was the one who'd planted the seed. I was the one who got to do the harvesting and yet we could rejoice together. <laughs> we could rejoice together in that. Here with the Samaritan woman, the seed was planted and the crop harvested almost at the same time. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the prophets, they talk about that time in the future where the, the harvester is going to overtake the sower. It's going to be like that. Open your eyes, says Jesus. Verse 35, he says to his disciples, do you not say four months more and then the harvest? tell you open your eyes and look at the fields they are ripe for the harvest now even now the reaper draws his wages even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together what are you waiting for the harvest is happening the despised half-caste Spiritually compromised Samaritans are finding their deepest needs met in Jesus. And so half the town goes to see Jesus and Jesus talks with them. In fact, in verses 39 through to 42, they invited Jesus to stay a couple of days with them. These are the outcasts. These are the despised. These are the, you know, when Jesus left them to go further north into Galilee, it says that a prophet was, is without honour in his own hometown. But here they honoured him. How good would that be? A couple of days with Jesus as your teacher. Reckon you'd learn a thing or two? I reckon you would. Uh, John tells us that there were many who believed simply on the testimony of the woman herself, but after they had two days with Jesus talking to them, it says that many, many more believed. There were so many people coming to him when he was in Judea that he thought he'd better leave, go to Samaria. And wow, what a harvest happening there. In contrast to the Pharisees, the Samaritans became convinced that Jesus really is the Saviour. In verse 42, he's not just the Saviour of the Jews, but in verse 42, he is the Saviour of the world. He is their Saviour. The Samaritan woman knew that her life was broken. But we're all broken. For we all prefer to drink the stagnant waters of life outside of God and our thirst is not quenched. The tanks have got cracks in them, they leak 
You could be a multi-billionaire and still be very thirsty. Like Philip Ng, who said that, he said this about life, and I quote, he said, it sure beats, it's about true life that is, he said, and I quote, it sure beats a lot of money and material things. He says, true life starts with accepting that you are broken and that there is a missing piece and that missing piece is our Lord Jesus Christ. What about you? What's, what's your response? Jesus offers living water through his death and his resurrection. And he told the Samaritan lady, the water I give becomes a spring of water. It flows like a spring of water and it wells up into eternal life. Have you drunk that water? Um, and if not, is there any reason not to do so, even now? Um, you, you may have been coming along to church for a while and hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ. You might be interested in what the Bible has to say. You know how much he loves you and you know what he's done for you on the cross. But you haven't yet taken the drink. You haven't yet put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You haven't abandoned your own life and given yourself over to him. What's stopping you? This is true life that leads to eternal life. It's a good thing to do because when you do, you will never thirst again. Never. And if you have experienced this living water, are you involved in the harvest? I mean, the disciples, they could only think about lunch when there was an opportunity staring right at them. What about you? Are you looking for that person? Are you praying for that conversation? Are you open to that opportunity? Open your eyes, says Jesus. The harvest is happening. Are you open to the possibility of actually telling other people about Jesus? That they might enjoy the living water that has given you so much satisfaction and eternal hope. Well, let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for Jesus. We want to thank you for the love that he had, that he, he, would, he would talk to the Samaritan woman, that he cared for her. He cared for her deepest need. Father, we thank you that he satisfies that need through his death and resurrection, through forgiveness of sin, eternal hope, because through him we are accepted by you. Father, we pray that uh, for anyone here who has not put their trust in the Lord Jesus, that they would do so. And we pray for those of us who have drunk his water, that we would also eat his bread, that we would be people who uh, know that the bread of life is to actually do your will. Help us, Lord God, to have such a passion for people that we'd 
We would, we would look for opportunities. We would want to actually talk to people about you, knowing that the harvest is, is happening. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but um, when I listen to a sermon, uh, sometimes I get tingling in my feet.